Well, hello, everyone, brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm Spencer Borisma, and I'll be um, uh, preaching this morning. I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. Uh, the psalm I'd like to recite is Psalm 77 in the NRSV. I cry out aloud to God, aloud to God that he might hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. I think of God and I moan, I meditate and my spirit faints. You keep my eyelids from closing. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old and remember the years of long ago. I commune with my heart in the night. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And I say, it's my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I will call to mind the deeds of the Lord, and I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have displayed your might among the peoples. With your strong arm, you have redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O Lord, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth shook and trembled. Your way was through the sea and your path through the mighty waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God bless the reading of his word. The Psalms are the prayer book of Israel, arranged to meditate and pray through uh, our life obeying God's law. They are written in five books, mirroring the books of Moses. And that's a lasting reminder in the canon that if we want to believe in God rightly and we want to follow him rightly, we're going to have to learn how to pray rightly. As Psalm 1 and 2 form a kind of gateway into the Psalter, these poetic prayers are intended to pray through the rise of David, the anointed one, the plight of the persecuted righteous. But then the failure of the Davidic kings, the exile of God's people, the destruction of Jerusalem and its devastation, and then finally the restoration of, God's, uh, of Israel's hope in the coming Messiah and the restoration of temple worship. In this travail of 150 psalms, when I first started reading these psalms back when I was in high school, I remember, I remember being stunned by them, that over, over half, uh, about half expressed lament and disorientation and doubt and anger, even accusation at God. About half of these psalms are what Walter Brueggemann calls psalms of disorientation. And make no mistake, they can be disorienting. The first time I read some of these psalms, I remember my words being caught in my throat in shock. 
Why, God, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Says Psalm 10. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 43. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Psalm 44. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Psalm 75. It's not even whether, it's why. Lord, where is your great love? Psalm 89. I remember saying to myself, how can this, how can these words be in the Bible? How can I pray these or recite them? I don't even feel right saying them. Doesn't the author trust God? How can they say such false, absurd, and in my opinion, it felt disrespectful at times. I was taught that God is good, and if you felt otherwise, your feelings were wrong, and so don't trust your feelings. I was taught that we are saved by faith. Indeed, we are. But how do you know you have faith? You believe the right things. How do you know you, write the th you, you, know you believe the right things? The Holy Spirit convicts you. And so don't ever question those beliefs. To doubt them is to doubt what saves you. You trust them and never waver or else doubting you'll go down that slippery slope. I was taught that all Christians, what all Christians need to do to overcome sadness or despair, if true Christians even felt such things, was to maybe believe a little bit harder, to focus on Jesus a little closer, to follow and obey more ardently. We sang songs like, since Jesus Christ came in and cleansed our hearts from sin, I'm in right, out right, upright, down right, happy all the time. Some of you remember that song. And in time, while it's a fun song, we realize not all times are happy. And so when I came across a psalm like this one, my automatic gloss on this text, my automatic way of getting to the next scripture was to just sort of uh, pass over it so it would fit my paradigm. And I would say stuff like, Huh, that's weird. That must be one of those old covenant things. And I'm so thankful I'm in the new covenant of grace now. I don't see Matt or Glenn on my screen, but I suspect they just shuddered a bit. The Psalms, though, are perhaps one of the most interesting books of the Bible in that they are God's word to us by first being our words to God expressed in prayer which poses all sorts of interesting conundrums of how we understand inspiration for sure. If Marshall McLuhan once said, the medium is the message, the fact that the Psalter is the experience of God's people prayed to God, the experiences of creation and politics, love and war, illness and healing, obedience and confession, thanksgiving and despair, praise, uh, uh, praise for God's presence in one's life, but more pointedly for us today, Lament over times of the sense of God's absence. All of these prayers, strangely and beautifully, turn back to be a word from God to us. And this says something. There is simply no domain of human experience, whether science, history, politics, or poetry, that is irrelevant or meaningless to our relationship with God. That includes times of despair, times which we feel abandoned by God, even anger at God, God permits in his grace that all of these are meaningful to him. He wants to hear about it. Worship, according to the Psalms, means that there is simply no facet of human life that God does not find meaningful and no facet of human life that cannot find its meaning in him. 
whether it is those high mountains of divine ecstasy, miracles, visions, or maybe that fuzzy feeling we all get when Andrew Conrad sings and we love it so much. But it also the opposite, those dark valleys, the valley of the shadow of death, discouragement and despair. The Psalms like this one offer a template for our emotions to inhabit. They give words to the voice that is on our hearts. They are, as John Calvin once said, the mirror of our souls. They offer, offer a rhythm to allow scripture's story to become our story, and they allow our, our story to become an extension of Christ's story in the world. There is a Christian poem that we've probably all heard so many times, seen them on calendars and mugs and bookmarks, that it might be a little cheesy to quote it right now, but it goes like this. There was a man walking along the beach with God, and he looked at his footprints, the tracks. And where, seem, where life seemed to be the toughest, he only saw one set of tracks. And so he turned to God and said, God, where were you then? My child, God replied, that is when I carried you. We miss, I think, in this insight here that there are definitely times in the Christian walk where God feels absent. We will feel times in our lives where God has forsaken us. It's perfectly natural. That's why it's in the Bible. It is these times that, in fact, present us with ways of discovering God's presence that often we only discover that it was there until afterwards. And that gives us a new perspective going forward. The mystic Simone Weil once said, in her paradoxical way of saying it, the absence of God was more present to her than all the experiences of all other presences. In other words, when she looked out at the world and saw God absent, this for her begged all sorts of multi-layered questions of prayer and faith that she found atheism just gave too flat and shallow of answers to. Mystics like St. John of the Cross have called these experiences the dark night of the soul. Times in which we feel distance from, distant from God, times in which we even get angry at God or turn and blame ourselves like this psalmist did, accusing God. But if these, prayers, if these experiences do their work in us, if we allow them to become prayers and conversation with God, they can offer pathways of deeper trust, deeper intimacy, deeper love for a God who is beyond all things, ineffable, infinite, incomparable, beyond all our ideas and actions and feelings and deeds. Have you gone through a time like this for you? Do you wonder where God was in a time of your life? Perhaps you still wonder, perhaps you're going through one of sorts right now, or perhaps what I'm saying doesn't really relate to you, you feel, in that case, maybe you might want to bank this message for later. Perhaps somewhere in between midterms and finals, it might be applicable to you. That's just my guess. My, my story uh, happened final year of Bible college, which I call my dark summer. I went to a little Bible college in Cambridge, Ontario, my experience in Bible college up to that point was pretty standard. I hung out with friends. We goofed around playing video games till 2 a.m., pulled all-nighters, getting essays done, 
that we, uh, that we should have had done a long time ago, but we waited to the night of. We sat around strategizing on how to court women. I say court because, thank you, Joshua Harris, we didn't believe in dating. And if you don't know what that distinction is, consider yourself spared. The guy's residence, which did not permit the presence of a woman except between a small window of a few hours after lunch on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, was like a G-rated National Lampoon's animal house with holes in the walls from wrestling matches and broken lampshades from airsoft rifle attacks and other collateral damage from ongoing prank wars usually done by disgruntled doormates against their residence advisors. I think it was the kind of usual college stuff, but perhaps you've had a different experience. I loved my studies, despite not taking them particularly seriously. I was always an insatiably curious person, and for those who know me, I have a memory that allowed me to be very lazy in my studies and still get by with good grades. And while the seminary's official perspectives were often quite conservative, just wrestling in scripture hard and in a focused way asked me to uh, caused me to ask all sorts of questions about the reliability of scripture. How do you interpret Genesis 1? How do you interpret the book of Revelation? What about the ending of Mark? And dare I even ask, could a woman even be ordained? That was a dangerous question around my seminary. And each time, I would just repress that question with a quick proof text. Swallow it up with an easy proof text, lest I go down one of those proverbial slippery slopes. Or at least I certainly tried. While I was in college, I helped uh, a small house church. I remember one night after an alpha course I led with, the, with another pastor. I was angry at one person because they believed in infant baptism. How dare they? I turned to my pastor and friend and said, we need to stop this person from believing those things. It's unbiblical. My pastor and friend turned to me in the car and said, how do you know you're not wrong? I turned to him and said, I, I can't be wrong. I have the Holy Spirit. He smiled and echoed my words back to me. You're saying you can't be wrong? That's right, I said. I have the Holy Spirit. I can't be wrong. You can't be wrong? And back and forth, this went for a lot longer than I'd care to admit, but eventually I heard myself and I remember saying, wow, I sound arrogant. I'm human. I'm a sinner. Of course I could get things wrong. That's part of faith, really. <laughs> but then I realized that day when I could ask myself, can I be wrong about anything? That's the day my faith started to fragment. The, the foundations were shaken. Psalm 77 says in verse 3, I think of God and I moan, I meditate and my spirit faints. Tremper, Tremper Longman notes that the psalmist seems to be coming uncomfortable with the ideas he is pondering about God as if pat answers no longer satisfy. But then something else happened in my life. My father, who had just retired, complained of stomach aches at Christmas time in 2005. Doctors diagnosed it as inoperable pancreatic cancer. In four months, he lost over 100 pounds and shriveled up into something that, I, that resembled, in my opinion, what you see in Holocaust photos. My dad was a strong person of faith. He knew that he was going to die, and he told me, Spencer, I'm not going to make it out of this one. He told me how proud he was of me. 
He encouraged me to keep going in ministry and in academics. He saw that I had a gifting in both. He took off his wedding ring and his favorite watch and he gave them to me. He kept telling me that the last thing he wanted to do before he died was to see me graduate. And so in April, they drove to Forward Baptist Church. They brought him in in a wheelchair for the graduation ceremony and he passed two weeks later in hospice, just four months after being diagnosed. Losing your dad is sort of like losing the one reason to make another person proud because he was that person. Watching your dad die, knowing that pancreatic cancer is hereditary is sort of like watching yourself die. To be permanently haunted with the sneaking suspicion that one day you're just going to get a stomach ache and then this is how you'll go and it will be painful. It caused me to wonder What's the point of doing all these studies? What's the point of doing anything? What's the point of anything for that matter? He showed me, however, a great example of perseverance and suffering. One time his meds wore off and he clenched his fists so tightly in pain, his fingers dug into his palms and his palms began to bleed. Bent over in tremendous pain, he started to pray and he said, thank you God, even for this, thank you, Thank you for every opportunity you give me to show how much I love you. Those words got me through a lot. At the same, same time that summer, I went to the mall. I saw my close friend, so more things started happening. He was a part-time supervisor there, an associate pastor in the area. He, uh, he asked if we could go out to his car for a break, and I agreed. And when we got there, he confessed to me that his marriage was coming to an end. Why, I asked. He responded, Spencer, it's because I'm gay. This came as a complete surprise to me. He apparently married his wife trying to change and suppress his orientation. He had gone through years of reorientation therapy and it just made things worse. Finally, he had enough and they were calling it quits. And when he told his senior pastor, the man fired him on the spot and said, you just clearly don't have enough faith. The ensuing scandal led him, my friend, to become suicidal. He had become convinced that he was predestined not to actually have salvation because he thought, with enough faith, I can do anything. And if I still feel like this, I must not have enough faith. And if I don't have faith and faith is just a gift from God, God must not want me to be saved. Perhaps, as he said to me in that car, maybe I'm one of those people who say, Lord, Lord, but never are actual believers. And so he concluded that if he didn't have God in his life, life was no longer worth living. And he, he attempted suicide, but thankfully failed. As he told me this story, he showed me his hands and they were grooved up and down his wrist to his thumbs with slices that he concealed under long sleeves. Just the sight of that moved me to tears. And what I managed to choke out was that if you're willing to take your life because you didn't have God, because life wouldn't be worth living without God, truly you revere God in a way that I will never understand because I've never felt that way. I think that's a very good sign that you do have a relationship with God. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, not the rich in spirit, thankfully. And if Jesus died for all sin at the cross, I simply could not accept the notion that God rejects any person who turns to him, no matter who they are. 
final. My summer had even more happened to it. The pastor of that little church I volunteered at, uh, it began to close and we moved the congregation into another congregation. My friend at this time became increasingly wayward at this point. He and his family went on vacation to his hometown and when he got back, as I saw him regularly, everything seemed different. I thought he was angry at me. He seemed dodgy and standoffish. Turns out their marriage was ending. The man met up with a woman from high school while in his hometown, and um, he was planning to go to leave to be with her. News like this did not stay hidden, and it was a real big mess. He left, and I remember him telling me all this, and the shaken state of mind he was in, it left me rattled for days. I idolized this person. He was my mentor and best friend. Yet I watched this man spiral mentally and spiritually into chaos. He left for a time and eventually came to his senses and came back months later. During all this time, I was penniless. I couldn't find a student job at the beginning of summer. And so I was getting back on summer rent where I was staying and worried, would I be kicked out? Where would I go? I finally got a job working at Tim Horton's night shift. My only conversation partner in the dead of night for four 10-hour shifts a week as I cleaned coffee pots and changed garbage cans was a Polish immigrant lady named Helena who knew just about enough English to uh, order or take an order of coffee, swear under her breath at customers in half English, half Polish, and then ask to go for a smoke. And so those were very lonely nights. As the semester started, I had to work night shifts, then go to class, sleep, and then work through the night just to keep up. My father dying, my friend coming out and attempting suicide, my friend and mentor breaking down. All this happened in one summer. When you care about a person, when you culminate deep friendship, their doubts have a way of becoming your doubts and their pain has a way of becoming your pain. And many of us shrink away from this because of what that could imply. The Psalm records in verse six, I communed with my heart in the night. I meditated and I searched my spirit one night I recall sitting in my room feeling like all rational grounding for my faith was gone. It just left a void. All practical examples of my faith had failed, left the church, or even worse, had passed away from some horrific God-forsaken illness. It was in that moment of despair I sensed the great void of meaning confront my life. Could all this be worthless? Is life just a veneer over the abyss of a vacuous truth? The psalmist asks in verse eight, has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut up his compassion? I remember saying, where are you God? Why didn't you heal my dad? Why didn't you come through for my friends? Are you even there? And then something happened. Something manifested itself to me. I remember sensing in the avoid, the, the abyss of the void, the truth of Christ. Beyond all the failures of human thought and religion, a hope prevailed. The darkness did not go away, but it became a darkness less of fear and more of stillness. An existential selah, perhaps the psalmist would say. Then something happened. Something, um, I simply was reassured 
that while I can get my faith terribly wrong, Christ is still who he is. My truth can fail me, but Christ will not. If Jesus is who he is, even if we are faithless, says 2 Timothy, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. The psalmist similarly turns, despite doubt, despite anguish and accusation, and recounts the deeds of God. I will meditate on all your work. Your ways, O God, are holy. You are the God who do wonders. You redeem your people. The result of this, I committed to rethinking my faith in the coming months with a newfound hope and assurance. That summer, I must have read through 30 books. I thought to myself that if Christ is true and my beliefs have failed, I owe my faith the benefit of the doubt and investigate others, what they've said, those voices that I perhaps have either ignored or missed. My studies became one of deep personal drive that pushed me onto doctoral studies, driven by this thrill, thrill I would say, of wondering and wandering, knowing that God is with us, not despite the questions, but in them. I did not mean nor want any of these things to happen to me that summer or my friends in seminary. No person wants their faith to be fragment like, fragmented like this, especially those who need it the most, as I did. I have met so many Christians who have gone through a time of questioning or a time of disorientation, and they've fallen away from church or from faith altogether, often because of an expectation of faith that doesn't permit a question. It cannot see God's presence in times of darkness. And yet this psalm here, this psalm here, invites us to do so in prayer. I think that's why it's there. If you know somebody, perhaps, in your life like this, can you continue to pray for them? We know that our Good Shepherd does not give up on lost sheep. And if you, at this point in your life, feel like one of those lost sheep, know that the Good Shepherd is seeking you out and he is with you. Know also, perhaps, if you feel this way, know that, there, that you have brothers and sisters in your ADC family that might, might know a thing or two of how this feels. My other concern is for us pastors and teachers. Sometimes we become so obsessed with numeric growth, we neglect the hard work of spiritual growth. Sometimes we are so afraid of the fallout from asking a difficult question to our congregations, we don't ask it at all. Or worse, sometimes we become so afraid of the consequences of thinking about these questions we just stop asking them of ourselves entirely. To paraphrase St. John of the Cross, those who are in the deepest and darkest nights of the soul are the ones who have convinced themselves they are, working, they are walking in the perfect daylight. C.S. Lewis once said at, uh, in his book, A Grief Observed, um, thinking about how his wife died and his faith afterwards, he says this, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has been shattered time after time. God shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not also say that this shattering then is one of the marks of his presence? And most are offended by this iconoclasm, but blessed are those who are not. Blessed are those who are not. May you, be, uh, may you know today in all your questions, your wonderings and wanderings, that you have a God who knows you better than you know yourself and is closer to you than you are to yourself, who sees you with eyes of perfect mercy and holds you with the hands 
that were pierced and bled for you at the cross itself. May you be free to bring to him in prayer your whole self, nothing held back, whether confession or accusation, joy or despair, knowing that there is absolutely nothing, nothing at all, that will ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And may you be blessed to be shattered today. May you have your faith in fragments. And yet, little by little, day by day, fragment by fragment, as we see as in a mirror darkly, awaiting the day where we see face to face, may you be remade with these fragments into a mosaic that, be, that depicts the face of Jesus Christ to our broken world. Amen.